0: Grab a Bible and we are going to be turning to 2 Samuel chapter 9 this morning. 2 Samuel chapter 9 is where we're going to be. Turn your Bibles as we continue our look um, at the life of David and learn from this man who was described as the one who has the the man after God's own heart. And today is a great reflection as to why God viewed him that way, why God described him that way in one of my personal favorite stories in all the Bible. Second Samuel chapter 9, we'll read um, through verses 1 through 13. Read along in your own Bible as I read out loud. Hear God's words. And David said, Is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show kindness, show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David, and the king said to him, Now are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant." And the king said, Is there still, not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. And the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Mekir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And the, the verse 5, Then David, King David sent and brought him from the house of Mekir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And in Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, "...all that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall eat at my table." Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. And then Ziba said to the king, "...according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do." So Mephibosheth ate at David's table, like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son, whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. This ends the reading of God's holy and and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but the word of our God stand forever. Well, um, stories, in particular love stories, are really powerful. Um, really powerful to change us, indeed. In fact, in reading stories, that we become uh, different people, and it's it's not so much by I, I don't know about you, but whenever I've read 1 Corinthians thirteen, the great love description of love in the New Testament, while it's wonderful to read all those descriptive words about love, it to me it doesn't have quite the power and the ring of a love story. It doesn't move me, and and I don't really find myself changed as much by it. I think this is true. It's why God has given us so many stories. Rankin Wilburn, who's a pastor I like uh, to listen to a lot, um, illustrated um, something from a, a book called My Mistress's Sparrow is Dead. It's the name of the book. My mistress's Sparrow is Dead. It's an anthology of some of the greatest love stories ever written. It's called The Great Love Stories from Chekhov to Monroe. And the editor of this volume, bringing together all these various love stories from history, writes this in the introduction. When it comes to love, there are a million theories for trying to explain it. But when it comes to love stories, things are quite more simple. Things are much more simple the story in Second Samuel chapter nine is not thought of or reflected upon. It's not in this book of anthology of great love stories, but it ought to be, because it is one of the greatest pictures of God's love in all of the Bible, and we can see and learn and be moved by love and be conformed and challenged to radically be changed and conformed to a pattern of love by reading and understanding this story. David's love here is extraordinary. It is, that is the word for it, it is extraordinary. It is a love that goes above and beyond anything that we might imagine giving and extending to someone else. And so I want to show you, just from this story, three ways to begin, and then we're going to spend actually a significant time this morning on application for your own life. But three ways this morning in which David's love is Extraordinary. David's love here in this text, in this story, is extraordinary because he loves the undeserving. Because he loves the undeserving. David asks this question at the very beginning. Is there anyone left of the house of Saul? And Ziba says, yes, there's a guy named Mephibosheth. Now, very, just, a few, just a note at the beginning. I may at various times call Mephibosheth Meph, Because you can get in big trouble if you continue to try to say Mephibosheth over and over and over again. And so everyone, everything about Mephibosheth in this text though, especially in, if you understand in an ancient eastern context, says that Mephibosheth is undeserving of David's love. He is undeserving of it. He is one who goes onto the radar of someone we would normally call loving. Let's review who Mephibosheth is. In 2 Samuel chapter 4, we get our first picture and introduction to who Mephibosheth is and we're seeing in second samuel chapter 4 in the midst of this context where david it's the end of the civil war between david's house or david's house and saul's house where uh, the great, the commander of uh, Saul's house, Abner, has been put to death, has been slain and assassinated. And it's essentially the end. The army that followed Saul and Saul's family is dissolving. And in the midst of this, it tells the story, gives a background story about Mephibosheth, goes back to another bad day for the house of Saul. It was the day in which both Saul and Jonathan die. And their hands are they're, they're taken and they're killed by the Philistines in a battle. And so the nanny, who is essentially taking care of Mephibosheth, in the midst of this, when the, the king and the prince are killed, the Philistines are coming into the land of, of Israel, and they're going to seek to pillage and take authority and rule. And so this nanny takes this little boy, who is the son of Jonathan, and runs off with him, knowing the Philistines are coming to pillage the land and destroy those they can fly. And so in her fleeing, though... She trips, and she falls, and she drops Mephibosheth on his feet, and he breaks both his legs. But back then, they don't have emergency medicine quite like the, we do, and so his legs never set quite properly again, and he is a cripple for the rest of his life. But it goes beyond simply even um, his undeservedness, his lowliness goes beyond his physical state. The very name Mephibosheth reflects his state in life. The exact meaning of Mephibosheth is hard to, for commentators to, to, to understand. But we, it generally means something like this. One who scatters shame. Or from the mouth of shame. That there is something shameful about the very presence. That when, when Mephibosheth shows up places, to anybody who is a relative or knows who Mephibosheth is, that everyone feels shame. Have you ever been in the presence of somebody who is has fallen? They've come from a high place and they've fallen Drastically, that's Mephibosheth, and you feel embarrassed for them. That's Mephibosheth. He has fallen from being a son of the grandson of the king to now being at this place where he is a lame and a cripple, one whose family is no longer in power and rule. And this is what Meth had to suffer. This is what Mephibosheth had to suffer. Not only as a member of Saul's fallen household, but he has to suffer in his lameness. He is lame. He is physically unable. And we also, we see in the story that the author, in reflecting upon where Mephibosheth is, when the nanny runs off with him and he goes into hiding and goes to a place called Lodabar. Now, Lodabar means, it can have various meanings, but it means this essentially that it's a place of no pasture or nowhere. In other words, it's the desert. It's a, pl- it's a place of poverty. There is no pasture. There is n- life cannot grow in this place. It is a nowhere. It's the middle of nowhere is what they're saying. But this is a man who is lame and crippled and poor. He has fallen from a great spot as a child to now in a place of lowliness in this culture. He is now, he's also something more than that. He is not just lame. He is not just full of shame. He's not just in a place of poverty in the middle of nowhere. But he has got something, another strike against him and his undeservedness. His heredity. His grandfather is a blight against him. Verse 6 in Zeba describing who he is. It says this, he is the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul. Mephibosheth is quite simply made of the wrong stuff. Because he is the enemy. The first couple chapters of 2 Samuel are about this. The civil war between David's house and Saul's house. And Mephibosheth is perhaps the last living descendant of a rival king, of a previous regime. But not just any rival king, but the rival king whose name is Saul. Now remember, David's relationship with Saul. To say it was rocky would be the understatement of the century. Saul spends the better part of two decades, perhaps chasing chasing David all over the wilderness, trying to kill him. And in fact, David or Saul at various times would stir up the entire army of Israel to try to go and find David. In other words, you might think of it this: the entire military industrial complex of Israel at the time has been about one thing—killing David. That's who King Saul is. That's who his family, Mephibosheth, is related to. Now perhaps we can understand why Mephibosheth was trembling as he came in David's sights. David calls Mephibosheth to him, and you have to wonder what Mephibosheth is thinking. He is thinking, this is it. This is the end. I am dead. I am gone. My head is a goner. This is the end of the line for me. And not only for me, but probably for my sons. And my wife, all of my children, will be killed because of the relation to me. Mephibosheth was lame in his feet, but he wasn't lame in his brain. And so he was, he was scared as he came in David's presence. And yet, what does David do for this man? The one who is seen as an enemy. The first thing he says is he gives this man security. And David, in verse 7, says words that had to be music to Mephibosheth's ears. Mephibosheth, do not be Afraid. The signals of Mephibosheth that he will not receive what he expected to receive. He didn't, wouldn't get to receive what every other king of the ancient world would have given to any rival king and their family. He wasn't going to receive death. Mephibosheth, you and your family, David says, may have been my enemy. You may be the greatest threat to my throne. I should kill you, Mephibosheth. I should put an end to you. Every practice of this culture. Every advisor, every counselor of mine, every right of mine says this that I should put an end to you, but I will not. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. And in this, perhaps you can begin to smell a gospel of love. Let me read to you from Romans chapter five, verses six to ten. And see if this sounds familiar to you. Pick it up in verse 6. For while you were still weak, poor, lame, living in the middle of nowhere, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die but God shows his love for us in that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. In verse 10, for while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. While we were still enemies, we are those, think about who you are. We are those who are living in the nowheres of this earth the nowheres of this, the nowhere of this earth. We are the ones who in our sin, people are embarrassed. If they, right, you know this about yourself. If someone would actually know all about your sin, we would be ashamed to be in your presence. We'd be embarrassed for you. We'd be embarrassed to be with you. We are the ones, in the history of the world, we are the ones who have made ourselves enemies of God. And yet the first principle, though, for grappling with the marvel of God's love to us is to realize this, that he has no business loving us, and yet he does so anyways. That's what's going on in this text. What I'm saying is this, is that you are the Lord's Mephibosheth. That you are lame and weak and crippled, And if we have any sense that we will come before the Lord with trembling and fear, but we will hear this, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Do you understand that that is is the love of God because of His grace to you? Listen, if I'm on my deathbed one day, man, I hope one of the last things, the last words that come out of my mouth, are of God's grace. But perhaps I will end the sentence this way. When I'm reflecting about the love of God, and we sang about it this morning, in the love, that great hymn, The Love of God, reflecting on something that is said by John in Revelation, that if, if the ocean was ink, we would run it dry trying to describe the love of God. And so perhaps that's what that, what that is communicating is this, is that what perhaps maybe I'll say on my deathbed, and maybe you will too, is that God has loved me and I don't understand it at all. The wonder of God's love for us, that he would care and love for enemies, lame and ashamed ones like you and me. So David's love is extraordinary because he loves the undeserved. But second, I want you to see this. David's love is extraordinary because he loves so lavishly. Because he loves so lavishly. David goes beyond the call of duty here, way, way beyond the call of duty. You might think, My goodness, David, his advisors may be looking at him and going, Now listen, it is awesome for you to be merciful to this guy. But mercy here would have been simply to let Mephibosheth live, right? That would have been mercy. Mephibosheth, I'm not going to kill you. Now go go back to Lodabar in the middle of nowhere. Go back to your lameness and your crippledness and your poverty. Go on back out there where no one else is paying attention to you. But David goes way beyond mercy here. What does he give to Mephibosheth? It is extraordinary, and it's lavish. He, first of all, he gives him provision. Look at verse 9. Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. What does David do? Not only is he merciful to him, but then he makes Mephibosheth rich. Understand, he's giving him back All of Saul's land. Who was Saul? He was the king, which means he owned a lot of land in Israel. And not only that, but he gives him thirty-five servants, Ziba and his sons and his grand and their servants. And they are all their whole life is to be dedicated to serving Mephibosheth. What has he done? He has made a man who is utterly impoverished now wealthy beyond his wildest dreams. That is provision. But not only that, it it goes further. He gives him not just provision, but he gives him position. Four times, four times, David says this. He says, Mephibosheth will eat at my table. Verse 7, verse 10, verse 11, and verse 13. You think he's trying to get something across here. Four times, he said, he will eat at my table. But not only that, but in verse, I believe it's verse 10, he says this. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall eat at my table. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Remember who David is. Remember, there was a time when David sat at the king's table, at King Saul's table. And yet, how did Saul, what did Saul do when David showed up at the table? He threw spears at him. That's a bad dinner party for David. And yet, David says in response to that, I will not do, I will invite this man. Not only will I provide for him, I will provide him a place at my table, but then in that I will call him son. He will be treated as one who is inheriting as one of my sons who will inherit my life, my riches. He is adopting him here. You understand what is happening here? Mephibosheth is being elevated from low to bar to the table of the king. From the place of nowhere in poverty to the table of the king. He is going from an enemy to a son. He says, I, David says, I will set my love upon you. I will shower you with riches. I will adopt you into my family. And this is what it means to eat at my table. It means that there is fellowship between you and me. We are friends. We are family. This is lavish and extravagant love. This is not the lowest common denominator. This is not check the box and just barely stay in the game of my marriage. This is not just, I'm here to keep my word. This is, this is a love that is lavish. So let me ask you this, have you experienced the lavish love of God? It would be one thing for God just to be merciful to us, right? It would be one thing for God to come to us and say, all right, I'm not going to give you hell. I'm not going to send you away for all of eternity from my presence. I will be merciful to you, and I'll, I'll give you, you can live, that's nice. I'll let you have some life. You can scrape by some measly impoverished existence, that's not what he gives. First John chapter three verse one says this: "See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Love of God is certainly first and foremost seen in His mercy for us, but as an extension of that love and His mercy as He calls us sons. He makes enemies sons, He makes impoverished people rich. That's what God does for us. Such is the way of God's Hessod kindness. God has said love for us. Do you know that love? Have you experienced it? This brings us to the third description of David's extraordinary love here. And I ask this question to try to introduce us to it. Why, why would David love Mephibosheth this way? Why would he love Mephibosheth in this way? What motivated David? Why did he do this? There was no public pressure for it. There was no political pressure for it. Mephibosheth can provide nothing to David. At best, he will be a financial weight around David's neck. At worst, he will be an existential threat to David's throne and his kingdom. Why would David do this? Because he made a promise. Because he made a covenant. And here's what I want you to see. The third thing I want you to see is that David's love is extraordinary because he loves covenantally. Or if you don't, that word is too confusing. He loves faithfully. He loves covenantally. If you remember, we gave a couple of weeks in looking at this back in chapter 18, 19, and 20 of 1 Samuel. There was a relationship that David had with Mephibosheth's father. He had a bad relationship with Saul, but he had an unbelievably kind and covenantal relationship with Mephibosheth's father, Jonathan. Jonathan loved David, and in 18, 19, and 20, we see a repeat of a covenant that they make with each other. Let me remind you of what, what was the center of this covenant in chapter 20, verses 14 and 15. Jonathan says this to David, If I am still alive... Show me the steadfast love of the Lord, and do not cut that I may not die, and do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth, what is He saying? This He says, David, show me the steadfast love of the world, of the Lord. That is that word Hesed that Ed has been talking about in our worship orders. That is, it is described as love or kindness or faithfulness. It me the unfailing kindness, the love of God. Which means that is a kindness that goes simply more than keeping my kids alive. It is a love that is lavish. But you know, it's been about probably up to 20 years since David had made that promise and entered into this covenant with Jonathan. Jonathan is dead and he has been dead for quite some time. But what we see here is that David is still controlled by and directed in his behavior by a promise that he had made earlier. This is the power of covenantal love. This is the power of covenantal promises. So I ask you again this. Why? Why would David love Mephibosheth in this way? Why does David lavishly pour out love upon Mephibosheth? Was it because Mephibosheth had so much to offer the kingdom? Was this a politically savvy move for David? Why? Well, I'll answer it this way by kind of bringing an old riddle that perhaps some of you have heard before. When you see a turtle on a fence post, what do you know? He didn't get there by himself. And when you see a lame man... At the king's table, you know this, he didn't get there by himself. And when you see an enemy who is now a son, he didn't get there by himself. The reason why David loves Mephibosheth in this way is not because of anything that Mephibosheth brings to the table. It is only because of Mephibosheth's covenant head, a guy named Jonathan. It is because of David's promise to Jonathan that Mephibosheth gets blessings. He is safe with David because he has a covenant head in Jonathan. Because there's one who, who earned Mephibosheth's way at the table. There's one who was faithful in his love to David on his behalf. There was one who was faithful to his covenant, Jonathan was, to David, and so Mephibosheth gets those blessings. So I ask you this, why you're the turtle and why are you on the fence post? You're the lame man who was the enemy from the wrong side of the tracks, and yet you are sitting at God's table. Why? You're the enemy, and yet God does not destroy you. Why? Why do you get the lavish love of God? Is it because you had something that you had to offer God? Is it because God looked at you and said, you know what, i got to have that guy on my team. He is just so skilled. He is just so awesome. He, is it because that you came and you earned your way back into God's good graces? No. It's not because of you. It's because of one who is your covenant head. It's because God made a covenant with Jesus. God the Father made a covenant with God the Son. And God the Son said this, I, I will fulfill the covenant on their behalf. You see, in just the way that Jonathan fulfilled his covenant, he was faithful to David. He laid down, if you remember, as you look back at 1 Samuel chapter 18 and 19 and 20, David, or Jonathan comes to David and says, I will make a covenant with you, and I will lay down my robes, and I will lay down my sword, and I will give my life to you. He was covenantally faithful. And on your behalf, Jesus was covenantally faithful. He put aside his robe. He put aside his crown. He pledged his loyal love to God the Father. And he obeyed perfectly. You did not obey perfectly. You are God's enemy. But because you are by faith connected to Jesus, you are invited to his table. Here's why you can be certain of God's love for you. Here's why you can be certain of this also. That it's not simply that one day you're called into God's presence and he goes, you know what, I'm feeling really generous today. And so I'm going to invite you to my table and I'm going to treat you like a kid. But if you spill the milk of the table, you're out of here. How do you know? How do you know when you misbehave as one of God's sons that he's not kicking you out? How do you know? Here's why you can be certain. See, even those who, call themselves, who don't even call themselves Christians would say that Jesus is the greatest person who ever lived. But Jesus is the only person who ever actually fully deserved God's chesed love, God's covenantal love. He's the only person who deserves to eat with God the Father at his table. He's the only one who has deserved that place. To doubt, though, and he has given that deserved righteousness to you. Therefore, what this means is this. To doubt today or tomorrow God's love for you, that God will continue to be faithful to you, is to doubt God's word. Because God has said, I invite you into my presence. I have called you an enemy, a son. I have extended my mercy to you because of Christ Jesus, because he has been covenantly faithful on your behalf. And to say, I wonder if God's going to love me tomorrow is to doubt Christ's righteousness on your behalf. To, to wonder if God is going to kick you out of his presence is to wonder if God is going to kick his son out of his presence. That's what it is to wonder. Our Jonathan has spoken, has spoken to the king on our behalf, and he says this about you. And he says it day in and day out. He says, Father, for my sake, bring them home safely. For my sake, see that they are fully and forever taken care of, that they are given an inheritance. For my sake, bring them to your table. Father, for my sake, call them sons and daughters. You know that this is exactly what Jesus prayed? And John 17, it's called the high priestly prayer. Jesus prays this way so that we can know what he prays for us in heaven even now. And which in that prayer, in John 17, it says this, Father, may they, lo- know, may they know love, that you love them, even as, they, as you love me. John 17, may they know your love for them as is your love for me. Dare we doubt such a request by Jesus? That God's love is certain for us. It is always there for us. This is the good news. God is covenantally faithful to His Son. And He's covenantally faithful to you because you are in Christ Jesus by faith. This is the good news of the Gospel. That God's love, it comes to you who is undeserving. It comes with lavish love, with lavish expression of provision and position. And we all can also know this, is that that love will never, never, never be taken away. That's covenantly faithful love. Now, I want to draw out three applications for this for you. Because you all have covenants that you're a part of. And you're called to actually, you see, this text is about David. And the text is to Israel saying you're to love as David loves, as your king loves. But you have to realize this, that if you're going to love like David loves, you have to realize that you're Mephibosheth first. And as you realize you're Mephibosheth and receive God's love, receive the king's love like this, you'll begin to love like this. See, as receiving such love, receiving such faithfulness calls us and indeed empowers us to then enact this covenantal love for other people. And so I want to call you, to those of you who have experienced this kind of love, the love is one who is undeserved, a love that is lavish and a love that is faithful, that you would express love in this way in this world, first, that you would seek out ways to express love in verse one and verse one, David is finding, he is searching, he is seeking for ways to express covenantal love. David is seeking out ways to express kindness to Jonathan's household. You know this. You can know you've experienced the love of God when as citizens of the king, who have children who have come and begun to feast at his table, who have feasted at the king's table, when we begin to turn out and look at the the enemies of God's kingdom and say, God, I I want them to become citizens. I want them to become sons and daughters, and I want them to sit at your table as well. And then what do we do? Who do we seek? We seek the lame, We seek the lost. We seek the enemies of God. David seeks out those who are his enemies. He seeks out one who is lame and who is full of shame. So let me ask you this. What could make you go over the top in your love for someone who is undeserving of it? What could make you go over the top? When you get the gospel, let me give you three illustrations, again, stories to try to drive, drive this home for us. Three or four illustrations of history of those who got the gospel and because of that it drove them into this kind of lavish love. William William Force, when the whole economy of England was built around the minimalization, the trivialization, the marginalization of anyone with dark skin because they weren't worth that much in their eyes, said this, I will give my life, I will give my health, I will give my money, I will give my popularity to die for them. Why? Because he knew this is what God had done for him. That God had given his wealth and he had given his health and he had given his life to die for him. He who was marginalized, he who was seen as nothing, became much in God's eyes. What would make General William Booth No one talks about General William Booth anymore. When he is trashed by his own denomination, when they won't ordain him, he says, okay, you won't ordain me? Okay, thank you very much. That gives me my calling. And he takes a beeline to the impoverished people towards the slums of the cities of America. And General William Booth starts what's called the Salvation Army at a time when the church looked at the poor and the marginalized and said, you deserve it, you poor people. The church wanted nothing to do with, but the, with the poor, and Bo, Booth said, all right, that's it, I'll die for them. You, the church, you won't have me? Thank you, this is God's call in my life. I will go and die for them, because in poverty, my impoverishment, God found me and made me rich in Christ Jesus. What would make Amy Carmichael as a woman go to India where little girls are given in worship to sacred prostitution and execution as an act of worship in their culture? And as a woman, when she was preparing to go, she was mocked by a bishop named Stephen Meal for being a woman. But she gave herself to those who everyone else thought was minimized, was trivialized, was marginalized in this world. And if you ever go back and read Amy Carmichael's writings, you understand this, that what made a difference in her life and what set her on a trajectory to care for the broken and impoverished and ashamed of this world was the fact that she knew God had covenanted himself to her. And so she sought out ways to express that covenantal love to other people. Listen, you don't get this by coming to a building or by joining a church or by reading a book. You don't get this kind of covenantal love. You only get this when you see how God has covenanted himself to you. And then you could even go and love enemies. This is, and when this happens, when you love with a covenantal love like this, it can actually... In large part because of the starkness, the light of how beautiful it is in such a broken and profane and distraught and disgusting world. This kind of love, displayed profoundly, can be world-changing. Literally world-changing. Let me give you an example of it. In the 9th century, there was a king of England over Wessex. His name was Alfred the Great. Alfred the Great ruled over England at that time in which the Vikings were a great threat to England. And in fact, nine times he had successfully thwarted the Danes, or as we now know as the Vikings. But on the 10th assault, a guy named Guthrum, who was the head of the Vikings, successfully routed Wessex. And Alfred and all of his friends and his family had to run and hide on an island called Athelney, And he had to hide there for years. But eventually, over time... He marshaled troops again and brought an attack against the Vikings at at Wessex. And they won, and they captured back the city. Now you have to understand this. Alfred was a Christian. Now the Vikings expected that when Alfred came and defeated them in this battle, how they would be treated. They were expecting to be rounded up and slaughtered one by one, because that is exactly what they had done to the people of Wessex when they had taken the village, when they had taken the city. But instead, Alfred did this. Instead, he organized a service of worship. And he stood in front of the Vikings and he preached the good news of the gospel to them. And on that day, there was mass conversion. And then Alfred did the unthinkable. He seated Guthrum on his cabinet. And because of that, because he seated Guthrum on his cabinet, he actually learned all the tactics of the Vikings and was able to protect England from them. And listen to what one historian has said about Alfred the Great. He said, with the coming of peace, Alfred was able to apply his skills to the practical government of his country, and he reformed the laws of the land into Christian principles. He established what we now know of as English common law. It is rooted in Alfred's Bible-based reformation, and this reformation extended to other areas. He encouraged literacy for national leaders. He established public schools and the translation of the Bible, and he led a revival of Christian culture, the fruit of which you bear today. Everything that we know and we love, we actually care about about in Western culture, comes because of this man's reformation, because he applied the biblical principles of love to do things like establish public schools that we so chastise today, to do things like bring literacy to the broken, the translation of the Bible, to bring about the rights of others. It literally is world-changing for centuries upon centuries upon centuries to display a covenantal love like this when you love your enemies. It brings peace and it changes the world. The second thing I want you to see, not only do you seek out ways to love, but second, the call here is to bind yourself. To bind yourself. Hesed is this Hebrew word that we've said over and over again. It means steadfast love, faithful covenantal love, kindness, but Hesed is the devoted love promised within a covenant. And Hesed is love that is willing to commit itself to another by making its promise a matter of solemn record. It's binding yourself. And it's actually an act of love. In the movie Out of Africa, there is an off, a quote there that is now often sta- stated by many people in regards to marriage. It's Robert Redford and Meryl Streep. And at one point in that scene, there's this great love story between these two. And Redford is asked why he isn't going to marry Meryl Streep, whatever her name is in the movie. And he says this, I don't need a piece of paper to prove my love. Well, that is frankly quite antithetical to the gospel. Because a piece of paper, a solemn vow, and a promise states, I am going nowhere. It is the love that binds itself. True love binds itself to other people. Now this is something that our culture so desperately needs to hear because a love that is true love binds itself to another's. But it's one of the great ironies of our culture that we are obsessed with this idea of love, aren't we? Obsessed. Most of our movies, most of our songs, most of our time is spent obsessing of being addicts over this idea of love but we have been tainted and twisted by our culture so that we treat relationships and we treat love as if it's a commercial real estate. In other words, the law of commerce is that I serve myself, and if I don't get pleased by this this cable company, then I move to somebody else. And that's actually how we have begun to treat relationships. Our relationships to us are a commodity. I'm in it as long as it serves me. In other words, what this has done is it has turned us not not into committers, but into consumers. But gospel, loves, gospel love commits. We hate commitment. Why, why commitment, though? Why commit? Why commit to a community group this fall? Why commit to a church? Why commit to a, a, a woman or to a man, to a husband or a wife? You're just going to be gone, right, in a couple of years, right? In this transient, globalized co- culture where we just kind of come and go and people bail on us. Why make such commitments? What do you even like to commit to an Evite, Right? We, can't, we, have, um, we now have sign-ups. One of the things that, we, that you get recognized in, in church ministry is that here's one of the things that was so frustrating is that we put a deadline as to when youth are supposed to sign up for events and when you're supposed to sign up for events, and people don't sign up until maybe the very last second. And then usually it's after the fact. They call up the church office and say, hey, is it too late to sign up for that? Why do we do that? Because we like our options open, and we are consumers, not committers. Pete Davis at the Harvard Law Graduation. This is actually getting massive pub all over social media in the last couple of weeks. There's a great video of this. Pete Davis, who's speaking at the Harvard Law Graduation, said this, and he speaks so prophetically about our own culture, and I'm going to quote from him, and here's what he said in this description. It is a late. It is late at night, and you scroll through Netflix looking for something to watch. You watch a couple of trailers and read a few reviews, but you just can't commit to watching any given movie. Suddenly, it's been 30 minutes, and you're still stuck in infinite browsing mode. You're too tired to watch anything now, so you give up, cut your losses, shut the computer, and finally go to sleep. I've come to believe, he says, that this is the defining characteristic of our generation. Let's call it keeping our options open he says, goes on to describe it this way, that when we go to college, that we leave home. And coming here, he says, coming to college and coming into life is like coming into a large hallway. Walking into a long hallway with a thousand, infinite number of rooms that you can walk into. And you leave the room in which you grew up, and in this, this hallway has thousands and thousands of options for you. And you're browsing all of these options for life. And he says this, but when Hollywood tells tales of courage, they usually take the form of slaying the dragon. It's all about the big brave moments. But the most menacing dragons, he says, that stay in the way are the everyday boredom and distraction and uncertainty that can erode our ability to commit to anything for the long haul. He says this, as I've grown grown older here at Harvard, I also have seen the downsides of having so many open doors. No one wants to get stuck behind a locked door, but no one wants to live in a hallway either. It's great to have options when you lose interest in something, but I have learned that the more time, over time, I do the less... Sorry, I've learned that the more time I do this, the less satisfied I am with any given option. Lately, the experiences that I crave are less the rushes of novelty and more those perfect Tuesday nights when you eat dinner with friends that you have known for a long time. The friends whom you have made a commitment to and who won't quit you because they found someone better. We may have here to help, keep our, we want to keep our options open, but I leave believing that the most radical act we can take is to commit to a particular thing. To a particular place, to a particular profession, to a particular cause, to a particular community, to a particular person. The gospel is this, is knowing that God has committed himself to you. And he so bound himself to you when it didn't work for him anymore. He said, son, go and save them. He bound himself to us. Truly being a Christian will turn you from being a consumer to being a committer. Which means this, you stay in your marriage. You stay with that friend. That brings us to the third point. Not only do you seek out ways to love, not only do you bind yourself, but third, you keep covenants. You keep that covenant. It's amazing. David didn't flake, did he? 20 years has gone by since his covenant he didn't flake. Are you able to love others in that way? The reason David is able to love Mephibosheth in this way is because David has been loved by God in this way. God has been so faithful to David. And the point is this, is if you know the gospel of God's love to you, it will make you into one who keeps your commitments, even when it's hard. I've been reading a book this summer called A Loving Life by Paul Miller, and it has um, been quite formative for me. He says this in talking about love. He says, Sometimes hesed is translated as steadfast love. It combines commitment with sacrifice. Hesed is willing to have a one way love, love without an exit strategy. When you love with hesed love, you bind yourself to the object of your love, no matter what the response is. So if the object of your love snaps at you, you still love that person. If you had an argument with your spouse in which you were slighted or not heard, you refuse to retaliate through silence or or by withholding your affection. Your response to the other person is entirely independent of how that person treats you. Hesed is the opposite of the spirit of our age, he says, which says that we have to act on our feelings. Hesed says, no, you act on your commitments and the feelings will follow. Love like this is unbalanced. It is uneven. There is nothing fair about this kind of love. It's not fair to extend Hessed love to somebody else. But commitment love lies at the heart of Christianity. It is Jesus' love for us at the cross, and it is to be our love for one another. When you understand this, you can endure a tough marriage. God had a marriage, and it was the marriage from hell. He had an adulterous wife, and yet he pursued us. We can commit because love does not flake even when others flake on us. Because we know that we are loved by God, and nothing can remove God's has said love from us. So what could help you? How could we help members of churches to keep their promises? I want to hear this as a final plea to you. Jesus has pledged to them and when you come and you pledge before one another as members of a church, you understand and you recognize you do that in light of God's pledge to you. What can make a parent at the time when their child is baptized? We have parents come and they baptize, their children are baptized. But not only that, but there's an element in which parents also dedicate the child. God does the baptism, but parents are also declaring something in that moment. And they say that they promised by God's grace to endeavor to set before that child a godly example and to pray with and for that child and to teach the doctrines of their holy religion. What will help that parent in the moment when that kid who they pledged themselves to walks into their room and says, Mom, Dad, I'm pregnant. What will help them keep their hesed love to that child? Their vow that I'll continue to live before them the love of God and pursue them their child comes in and says, I hate you. What can make you faithful then? Listen, I've asked this question of me. What could make Andrew Kinley keep his promise to his wife? To have and to hold, to love and to cherish. That I will not, I will bind myself and I will close all other options. The door is slammed shut. I've locked myself in the room and I've thrown away the key. That's what marriage is. It's this. This is what we'll do it. The Jesus said to us in his word, He says, I, Jesus, take you, Andrew, to be my lawfully wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, because I am rich, but you are so poor, because I am better and you are worse, and I will be faithful to you to the very end. And so you keep covenant and you keep faithful, because this is what God has done for you. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your covenantal love for us. And Lord, the, the story of Mephibosheth is so beautiful and such a beautiful tr- picture of Your love for us. And yet, And Lord, I, I fear, my fear is that um, the whole idea of us being undeserving and that Your lavish love and yeah, You'll never leave us. It's just so we're so used to it. Oh, it's the spirit of the living God. My words fall flat. And so where they fall flat and where our hearts are cold, when we have given you the silent shoulder, I pray that you'd warm our hearts once again by your covenant love, that your spirit would heat us up again, warm us by your affection, shock us again by the faithfulness Shock us again by the lavishness of your love. May we ask, like David did after your covenant with him, why me, O God? Why me, O God? And would it elicit in us praise and honor that is then poured out into covenantal displays of love to other people? pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.